Notes from Nash. This is our final episode for a little while, or at least until October. Today's guest is Professor John Sides. Professor Sides is the William R. Kennan Jr. Chair of the Political Science Department. He's an author of Identity Crisis, the 2016 Presidential Campaign and the Battle for the Meaning of America, The Gamble, Choice and Chance in the 2012 Election, and Campaigns and Elections, Rules, Reality, Strategy, Choice. Professor Side has published in the American Political Review, American Journal of Political Science, Journal of Politics, and many more. He's one of the founders and publishers of The Monkey Cage, a political science blog on the Washington Post. Sides is also a research advisor to the Democracy Fund Voter Study Group and a member of the National Budget Roundtable. Please enjoy my conversation with Professor John Sides. What is uh, politics? Um, politics is basically the question of who gets what, where, when, and how. It's a, it's a process for adjudicating disagreements, and it's a process for figuring out how we allocate resources. It's a process for figuring out who the winners and the losers are for any particular political issue or question. How does how is American politics uh, any different than any other form of politics in, in in another nation? So, what is the defining characteristic of American politics? Um, the basic features of politics, the ones I just sort of laid out, are the same anywhere. I mean, those are the same politics you'd get within universities, you'd get within um, organizations of any kind. I would say that what's different in the United States or what differs across all countries really is exactly the political institutions that have been created to sort of create a forum in which politics happens in some kind of regularized fashion. So how, you know, how are elections held under what rules, what offices are chosen, how does the government structured, um, you know, what are the different institutions within that government? Those are the kinds of things that vary. But at the end of the day, those are all means for, by which people in these countries are trying to figure out the basic questions of politics. I'm thinking your definition of politics reminds me of, funny enough, Milton Friedman's quote, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to say it. I might butcher it, but it's something along the lines of, in order to do the right thing, you have to make it politically profitable for the wrong people to do the right thing. It's like he's very much, obviously he's an economist, but he's very much interested in incentive structures and how really nobody's really doing things out of the goodness of their hearts for the better of society, but we have the structure of society in which we can use that selfish impulse towards some greater outcome, positive greater outcome. Yeah, I mean, you go back to the Federalist Papers and, and James Madison says that, you know, men are not angels and, you know, the way to structure an effective government is to make, you know, one person's ambition check another person's ambition. So I think it's sort of a similar idea that mm. obviously individual people um, are motivated in politics for a variety of reasons. And I think that at times, of course, they're sincerely motivated by their, their particular vision of like what is good. Um, but when you're designing a government and you're designing a set of institutions and you need to make, you know, some baseline assumptions about the, about what human nature is. Um, I think both Friedman and Madison understood that uh, you do have to create a set of incentives to make sure that, that 
um, in particular, elected leaders are upholding the goals that we would like them to uphold. Now I want to kind of unpack your book, Identity Crisis, the 2016 presidential campaign and the battle for the meaning of America and what it is about. And it, I mean, it's it's a book that is, you know, very much appreciated in the world of Goodreads and Amazon. So, um, yeah, so we had written a book about the 2012 presidential election, um, um, Lynn Vavrick and I, um, another political scientist at UCLA. And when we started writing the, uh, these books, you know, we thought we were going to write a book about a presidential election and use the tools of social science to try to explain basically why the winner won. And that means, you know, relative to a standard election book, probably a lot more data, a lot more graphs, not the same kind of textual, you know, reporting that you might get from, from a, a journalist. Um, and that was, I think, w- when 2012, it was fun to do that. And it was fun to tell the story of how Obama beat Mitt Romney and take pot shots at journalists you know, <laughs> from time to time in the book. And then 2016, I think the nature of that race and the the fact that Trump won this surprising victory and, and many people didn't understand that and, of course, you know, had you know intense personal objections to him um, meant that we had to approach it with the same framework of um, data, social science ideas. But we had, I think, answer a, a, a much more challenging question, which is how does this, you know, political amateur um, with the long list of controversies that he had actually pull off a victory. Mm-hmm. So the way that we tell that story is it goes like this. Um, you start with an election in which, you know, the incumbent's no longer running. It's Ob- end of Obama's second term. Conditions in the country are pretty good, um, but it is not a situation in which um, the Democratic Party or the Republican Party um, should have expected a landslide. So it's going to be tight within a few percentage points in the national popular vote. Um, In fact, Clinton's margin, two points or so in the national popular vote, is pretty much in line with what you would have forecast if you'd known a handful of key features of the country, the state of the economy at that point, and things like that. But obviously, Trump wins the Electoral College, so how does he do that? Well, the the, the crucial thing that we argue in the book um, is that uh, people's attitudes about identity-inflected issues came to play um, a larger role in their decision-making in 2016 compared to 2012. And that is because issues like immigration, racial justice, um, Muslim uh, immigrants to this country or people Muslim living in this country, these were the bread and butter of like Trump's campaign from the moment he announced his candidacy for the Republican nomination. And, of course, Clinton drew a very sharp contrast with him. So relative to what Obama and Romney were talking about four years before, Trump and Clinton were talking about these issues a lot. And when voters get that information, what they're able to do is to use their own attitudes about those issues um, to form an opinion about the candidate and rely more on their views of those issues than they would have relied on if they had talked about the economy or they had talked about foreign affairs, like you know war, what have you. So those issues come to play a larger role. And why does this help Trump? Well. Within the Obama coalition are a surprisingly large number of white voters, voters for Obama, who had conservative views on these issues. Um, they didn't favor, let's say, a path to citizenship for undocumented immigrants. They, their views on 
racial inequality tended to lean more on the idea that it's because black people aren't trying hard enough rather than because there's this legacy of slavery and discrimination in the country. So it's surprising that they had those views and still voted for Barack Obama, but obviously people are messy and they don't always line up their views with the candidate or the party they're voting for on every single issue. But once they had the information from Trump in contrast with Clinton, then they can make those issues, those issues became more important to them. And so then they ended up voting for the candidate that matched their issue positions. The reason this helps them in the electoral college is that of course, those voters were concentrated among uh, white voters who had less than a college education. What states have a large number of those mm. voters, it's Wisconsin, it's Ohio, it's Pennsylvania, Michigan, right, and several other states. So Clinton does better than Obama in Texas and Georgia, but she does worse than Obama in those states in the upper Midwest, and those ended up being the crucial battleground states. Mm. Um, it's pretty well predicted, just term, if you're looking at how well Clinton did versus Obama, it's pretty well predicted by just you know the demography of the state, and we think the demography is a proxy for p political attitudes. And so Trump basically carves this narrow path through the Electoral College on his ability to win over some voters that had maybe previously voted for Obama in part. And you know, if you go back and you look at those margins, they're pretty narrow, but that's enough at the end of the day. Hmm. So that's the basic story that we tell. Interesting. I wanna go back to this idea that identity politics in a way, you know, switching the, the conversation to identity, allows for voters to refer to personal experiences rather than maybe just trusting what the person is saying who's running for president, say, in terms of economics, say, in terms of public policy. When you switch the conversation identity, well, we all have identities and we can all refer to personal experiences. Is that a positive thing or a negative thing? What does that result in? I mean, I think a lot depends on... Um which experiences and which attitudes are coming to the fore. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of the work in the literature that I think was written in, in the run-up to 2016, so even really before Trump's in the race, and then obviously since, one of the themes that emerges in that work, in part by talking to voters who are, to some extent, quintessential Trump voters or became Trump voters, mm -hmm is that their perception of, of questions about identity is really um, seen through this kind of zero-sum lens, where there's a competition between my group and these other groups, which usually means me as a white person and other groups, whether that's immigrants or African-Americans or what have you. And um, a, a sort of a dominant idea there is that those groups are getting things they don't deserve, and I'm, and I'm falling behind. And, and, you know, so some of the kinds of language that um, scholars who did like really kind of rich, like interviewing with these voters, not just doing like surveys and quantitative analysis, you know, they would, they would say things about how immigrants were cutting in line ahead of them. Um, or they would talk about how, um, you know, black people on receiving sort of government assistance were able to like, buy nicer things than they could buy, you know, working with their own two hands. Um, there's quotes along these lines you know, mm. in our book. And so, you know, I think um, 
there's nothing that I think is inherently wrong with understanding the world through the lens of identity. But I think one of the challenges that arises is that oftentimes um, that gives rise to perceptions of competition and conflict um, to a sense that one side has um, a greater, uh, I don't know, legitimacy than the other side. And that's why we call it the battle for the meaning of America, in part because we think that this is basically the argument that people are having, like who is America, who is American, who deserves to be here, part of that nation, this nation. So that, that to me, I think, was why the one of the more troubling ideas that emerges from our research and that of others. Um, it's not identity in the sense of, oh, well, this is where I come from. Where do you come from? You know, let me hear what you think and let's try to understand each other. It's really, I think there's an inherently um, more combative uh, framing that, that exists in a lot of people's heads. And I think Trump was able, he didn't create that. You know, mm -hmm. He was just able to tap into that. Yeah, this kind of reminds me of John and Hyde's work and his idea of moral matrices. And there's a, his whole idea thing is is that we best identify with certain groups and that identities are important. They're not superficial. They're they are important, um, which is you know counter country, which is counter, which is definitely. I feel like today the GOP or the conservative party is more leaning towards individualism and saying like this is all superficial, like color, et cetera. But that's a whole other thing. But anyways, the whole idea of fairness, moral matrix is that my group is existing in the same playing field as another group and another group. And for some reason, this group's being favored and that's not cool. And I'm thinking of Richard Nixon, you know, his whole idea of the forgotten American, you know, appealing to the forgotten American. Do you think what was the rhetoric that Trump used to appeal to a group that felt like it was being undermined by other groups? Yeah, the, the other thing. Uh, idea from Nixon was silent majority, right? So mm -hmm. uh, Trump's very much in that tradition. It's not a new tradition. Um, so, you know, what I think Trump, when Trump is talking along these lines, you know, obviously make America great again is a crucial part of that. So it's a fundamentally sure. nostalgic or backward looking. And, you know, the implicit message in that is, um, you know, things were better for you and now they've gotten worse. And so we need to return to a day when things were better for you. Mm. Um, and obviously, you know, he doesn't really give you, you know, a lot of great sort of specificity for no. like what exactly that ex specific era is. But the implication, obviously, it's, it's an era in which um, white people were not only more numerically dominant, but they were in some sense more powerful economically and politically, um, at least certain kinds of white people, mm -hmm. certain groups of white people. So I think that's part of it. Um, and the other thing that, it, that is really quite clear in Trump's um, rhetoric, uh, both as a candidate and as president, is this, you know, there's a very direct and um, specific naming of the groups that need to be um, viewed as a threat. And so, you know, for a long time, uh, racial politics in this country, as it was practiced um, by, you know, Conservative, many conservatives, some Republicans, um, Republican candidates, was it was a politics of sort of implicit messages about race. You didn't say mm. black people are a threat. You would just talk about crime, and your campaign ad would feature an image of a black man. Um, and there was a very, you know, 
I'm not even like, I don't even have to like say this as a scholar. Like there are quotes from political consultants in the 1980s saying explicitly this is what they were doing. Like, mm. you know, you can't say the N word, you know, you, you can only imply these racial messages. Um, you know, th 40 years ago, before, you know, 1940s, you could say that word and, you know, be a national politician or at least a Southern politician. So what Trump did that was different was that he made a lot of the implicit messages explicit. So he turned the, you know, we talked about dog whistling when we talk about implicit messages and the dog whistle becomes a megaphone. And so he says explicitly, it's Mexicans coming across the border who are rapists. Um, he he talked, he's, you know, retweets um, graphics about the um, rate of crime committed by black people, mm. like false statistics, but you know, there's no, doesn't matter. <laughs> well, of course not to him, but the, the point is like, it, it, it doesn't even pull, you know, it doesn't try to like put that behind some sort of plausible deniability built into an implicit message. It just says it. Um, and this is, again, this is why I think the, you can go back and read the quotes from some of the leaders in the white nationalist community at that point in time. And, and they were, you know, they felt like they had a champion because he would talk much more similarly to the way that they would talk. And so that to me is, is a big difference um, in the way that Trump approached this than had been typical for lots of politicians. And the fact you can really, if you, you know, we have a whole chapter, three chapters actually in the Republican primary, and you can go back and you can see the difference because when Trump says things, talks about like um, not having Muslims be able to immigrate to this country. Or he talked at one point about the judge who was overseeing the lawsuit from people that had been defrauded by Trump University. He, he, was, a Me he was a Mexican person, this judge. And so he basically said he can't get a fair shake from this judge because he's Mexican. And Paul Ryan at that point, so that's a textbook, he's a you know, Republican Speaker of the House, sure. textbook definition of racism. So, you know, again, the, Republicans at that time, his opponents in the primary, others in the party, including even people like Mike Pence, you know, who would go on to be part of the administration. They pointed this out, you know, and they criticized him for these statements. Um, so again, that to me just shows the gap between how Trump approached these issues relative to what was viewed as acceptable prior to Trump. You would think that Trump would not be popular for making his, what you would claim racism explicit, but he was popular despite it or because of it. I mean, I certainly there are there was a reservoir of opinion that I think where Trump's message just resonated with what people already thought. Hmm. Then I think there is another, you know, um, set of Trump supporters who are not probably, of course, his so-called base or his hardest core supporters, but they are voting for him in part because they're voting just for the Republican candidate for office. Hmm. And here's where, you know, we talk a lot in all of our books, but about just the, the nature of party identification, the power of party identification to bring voters who have Democratic or Republican identities or leanings toward their party's candidate at the end of the day. And this was, again, very, I think, um, visible in 2016 because you had Republican politicians who had become critics of Trump. Paul Ryan, Ted Cruz was certainly a critic of him when he was running against Trump in the right. primary. And they ended up, you know, saying basically even after the Access Hollywood tape, even after the, the scandal that that created, that they were still going to support Trump or they were, you know, publicly involved in promoting his campaign. 
in the simple, and, and that's not surprising in a sense, because what that just shows you is that, you know, no matter how bad they think Trump is, they're much more likely to agree with what he's going to do as president than if a Democrat's in office. Sure. So part of that, I think the, the combination of people's loyalty to the party, a combination uh, combined with the pretty unfavorable feelings they have toward the other party and the other party's candidate helps to ensure that, you know, Trump's going to get the vote. He did get the vote of 90 90-ish percent of Republicans, which is basically what Mitt Romney got. So it's no, there's no sort of like mass exodus, sure. you know, because of these controversies. So this, I think that's another sort of key feature of, of American politics and American presidential elections. We have a very narrow divide, roughly equal numbers of Republicans and Democrats in the national electorate. And so at the end of the day, if party loyalty is strong enough, then it's going to be difficult for one candidate to get an advantage that really adds up to some sort of landslide victory, which you're mostly anticipating, and you should certainly be anticipating in 2024 as a much more closely divided Mm -hmm. election no matter who wins. And would you say the the best, what is the best predict, predictor for what a person's going to vote for? If you were just looking at individual people, mm-hmm. um, I would say you're looking at party identification alongside um, other kind of deeply felt stable values and predispositions. Hmm. Um, you know, people, if you think about like, the beginning of a, a campaign, you know, the American campaign is quite long. So, you know, you're talking about between a year to two years like of active, like candidates campaigning, starting with a presidential primary. Not every voter like starts that process and with, with deep certainty of who they're going to support. Um, voters express um, like indecision or just uncertainty, um, or they express like a leaning for a candidate, but you wouldn't certainly characterize that as like a robust enthusiasm for that candidate. Right. So, but if, if, you know, if you knew, if you could do a, like a little survey of, of, of voters, um, you know, in, in that early period in the campaign, the ones who are a little less certain or undecided are likely to end up where those values and predispositions would predict. Um, the most interesting voters are the ones where those values and predispositions conflict. So that would be the classic Obama-Trump voter who is an Obama voter in 2012 but has these attitudes, as I mentioned, that don't really look like they're consistent with Obama's or with the Democratic parties. Those voters are potentially persuadable, right? Right. You talk about the right set of issues. But for a lot of people, you know, it's they have their values, their party partisanship, everything kind of like lines up well enough that you can pretty much predict where they're going. So mm-hmm. let's just say like there's a reasonably competitive Republican primary in 2024. Okay. And I don't, it doesn't matter who wins um, for the purposes of this thought experiment. But all you're, all you're trying to figure out is at the end of the day, are the supporters for the losing Republican candidates going to support the Republican nominee when that person runs against Joe Biden? And the answer, of course, is almost all of them will, mm-hmm. in part for these same kinds of predictable reasons. I want to go back to uh, Trump for some reason, um, because I thought it was interesting. Uh, I thought about the phrase, make America great again, which in its most fundamental sense is very conservative, right? This idea of calling back to something in the back. You know, it goes back to Edmund Burke, who was very much his idea of how to improve a state is you look at what your ancestors did, implement that into what you're doing now, and then carry the torch forward. 
it's very philosophically conservative, and I think it's different than what Bush did, right? And 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 not Reagan particularly, but definitely what Bush did. And that is like the most conservative thing about his campaign. Everything else doesn't seem doesn't seem to align with what the GOP had done years before. So how was Trump different and similar to conservatives of the past? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think you can see those similarities and differences if you get sort of beyond just the slogan like Make America Great Again. And actually, I mean, Reagan used a version of that himself, but sure. like you get down to sort of a sense of his policy priorities and his policy agenda. Um, you know, Trump didn't come into politics with, you know, obviously a really extensive and detailed set of ideas about policy, but I do think there are several um, that he meaningfully held. Um, one was that I think he had an instinctive, as we've discussed, um, uh, concern about immigration specifically. Mm. Um, and I think a history of um, abrasive and inflammatory racial politics, um, you know, he took out full page ads in the New York papers calling for the, you know, conviction of the so-called Central Park Five, the black men who were arrested for the, uh, I believe it was the rape and murder of a white woman in Central Park. They were actually innocent. Um, oh. th that was discovered years later. He's never, he's never sort of, you know, recanted that view. So Trump already was doing that in the 90s. Um, so I think there are, that is a tradition that exists among, in the political right in this country and, you know, and among um, previous generations of politicians, Republican politicians certainly, but of course you can go back to the era of Southern Democrats and sure, see very similar right. ideas. Um, that differentiates Trump from some of the party, but not all of the party. So Reagan was a, a fundamentally um, more, I think, progressive. I mean, a little bit on issues of immigration. He signed a big Im immigration bill over the objections of some of the Republican members of the House in 1986 that really? actually yeah, provided I mean, what we would now call amnesty, quote unquote, for wow. undocumented immigrants. And, and George W. Bush in 2006 also pushed for immigration reform and also ran into headwinds in his own party. So Trump's, I think, tapping into that strain but he's not. But what's different about Trump is that he's clearly breaking from the more moderate voices in the party. On other, on trade, he's breaking with the Republican tradition mm -hmm. of at least talking the talk in terms of free trade. Trump really dislikes trade deals. He always is sort of suggesting we're getting the short end of the stick, um, and and that sounds a little different than your classic Chamber of Commerce style Republican. Although all presidents, to some extent, practice a little bit of protectionism once they're in office, because it's an easy way to like curry favor with domestic industries. So, mm. you know, George W. Bush had steel tariffs to benefit the American steel industry, and you can see Biden continuing some of the tariffs that Trump created. So, but that still, I think there was a shift there on trade. But on lots of other issues, what's so interesting to me is that Trump basically got on board with the Republican parties long stood for. Even though that's not where he came from, he was probably sort of a Democrat. Unclear. He yeah. once point at one point he joked that it didn't really matter, <laughs> you know, because like all he needed was a zoning decision so he could build a building, and that <laughs> that's not a partisan issue, right. you know. So you think about abortion, uh, gun rights, taxes, 
um, in almost all spending programs. So, tr you know, like he's, he's for lower taxes, especially on the wealthy. He's for cuts to lots of domestic programs and spending his budgets always proposed these big cuts that most Republicans wouldn't swallow. He wanted to spend more on defense, however. Um, he did start the presidency ha saying famously you know, that he wasn't going to touch Medicare and Social Security. Occasionally, he would sort of flirt with the possibility that that might happen. But fundamentally, and this has really been reinforced this election cycle because he attacks DeSantis about this stuff all the time. Mm. I think he is in a really, you know, double down on the idea that probably correctly, it's not helpful for Republicans to talk about major reforms to entitlement programs, which would endanger benefits that seniors, of course, right. depend on. <laughs> so that's that's a difference, right? I, I was um, I wasn't sure. So not 100% sure that, that Trump himself has stamped out every vestige of desire for entitlement reform in the Republican Party, which, you know, there's a long tradition of this. Bush wanted to privatize Social Security. Paul Ryan, when he was a member of Congress, had this sort of a big plan to reform um, Medicare. So, but at the moment, as long as Trump has the presence that he does, I think it is pretty easy for him to defend his original position, dates back to his announcement of his candidacy in 2015, that, that we shouldn't touch these entitlement programs. And I think it creates less political space for the traditional conservative view in the party to, to hold sway. So I, 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 would, I'm, I think it's important when we think about Trump and the Republican Party not to lose sight of the many, many ways in which Trump became a conventional Republican and was able to maintain support within his party that despite the many controversies of his presidency, and in part, and in despite the fact that both voters and Republican politicians um, have mixed views of him as a person, right? But they're able to sort of stay on his side because he's basically giving them not an unconventional, unorthodox, populist presidency. He's giving them, with the exception of, you know, shifts on trade and entitlements, he's given them basically a pretty traditional conservative presidency with an extra, like, helping of nationalism when it comes to immigration and stuff like that. Sure. So you would argue that Trump conformed more to the GOP than GOP conformed to Trump? To some extent, yes, um, on a lot of these policy issues. But obviously, there are there are policy issues where I think that Trump has had an impact on the GOP as well. Okay. Now I'm interested. What is the single most important thing for a successful campaign? I've been reading a lot of Robert Cara recently, and mm. I can't stop thinking about what makes a successful campaign strategically, financially, or I guess we won't. I'll just say strategically. Um, probably it's helpful here to talk about like. What kind of campaign are we running and for what office? Let's say presidential campaign. Talking about a primary or a general? Yes, primary. Primary. Um, yeah, this is a, that's actually a question that's probably in some flux. Um, we, we would have said, even in the mid-2000s, political scientists, I think, would have said that part of running a successful primary campaign is building support among this sort of network of party actors and leaders, a lot of whom are elected leaders, but not all of whom. Um, and, you know, you'd start, there's political science research counting up the endorsements, right, that candidates would get from party leaders. And so, so who's winning the endorsement race? And you'll see that conversation happen. 538 is tracking endorsements already. Mm. However, Trump didn't get 
no, no endorsements from prominent Republicans, like at the federal level or governors and stuff like that, but he still wins in 2016. So that sort of theory has a couple of difficult election cycles to contend with. Um, so it's a little less certain the extent to which you need to sort of, you know, build that support from other leaders in the party still can't hurt. Do you need money? Yeah, absolutely. So Sanders is a good example of this. Sanders, again, very little support in the party in 2016, but is able to give Clinton a real significant challenge. I don't think he was really close to beating her at the end of the day. Like mm -hmm. I mean, if you look at what happens in the primary outcomes, like he never really could get close to her. Her he was going to get he was not going to get close to her delegate lead, mm -hmm. the way that the rules on the Democratic side allocate delegates based on primary outcomes. However, for a guy who was you know a Democratic socialist who wasn't even a Democrat, you know he he he, he gave her a long yeah. run, and and that wouldn't have been possible except for the fact that you can raise money. And in mm. small donors, you know, he's small donors, but so, but whatever, whatever your, you know, recipe is, whether it's large, small, medium, some combo of these kinds of donors, um, yeah, you have to have some degree of money. And there's two reasons, you know, one is that money's what buys you some attention, you know, and the ability to get attention. So if you're not starting with that sort of pre-existing base of support within the party and these party leaders endorsing you and all that, then you've got to find some other way to get on voters' radar screens and money buys you publicity. The other reason you need money is you just have to run a campaign, you have to pay staff, you have to like have internet, you have to, you know, right. fly people, fly around and do stuff. And, you know, sometimes campaigns um, sort of wither and die just because they can't literally pay the bills to do the work that they need to do. And so, and that creates kind of a self-reinforcing cycle where you're sort of limping along with not enough money and, and all of the reporting is how you're limping along with not <laughs> enough money. And so you can't raise any more money because everyone's perceiving your campaign is basically a lost cause. So I would say those are two things that you, you really need. Um, and then I think, you know, this applies to all campaigns, of course, but you, you need some degree of um, some kind of persuasive message that re reaches the voters that you need to reach in order to be the winner. Now that's going to vary year to year and candidate to candidate. Um, but, you know, so one thing that challenges Sanders relative to Clinton is that um, Sanders pitch is, you know, one of, you know, being this heterodox person who wants big change, you know, a revolution and that is a really appealing message to people who are not traditional Democrats. And it's a very appealing message to young people. However, young people and independents are a very small percentage of the Democratic electorate, right, in primaries. And so his message was really well suited to building, I think, a larger coalition than most people thought he could build, but it was not enough to build a majority coalition. So you've got to figure out how you do that. And that's in a primary that's really dependent on who the other candidates are, mm. you know? And so for Trump in 2024, especially for the candidates challenging Trump, you know, trying to figure out how do I um, present myself in a way that gets me the, uh, you know, enough, votes to, to build up a delegate lead after the early primaries and caucuses. Trump didn't win the majority of votes in the Republican primary in 2016. He won less than 50% because 
you know, Ted Cruz won some and Marco Rubio won some and John Kasich won some. And, but, you know, he won clearly enough to build the delegate lead he needed. And so, you know, I think even in a primary where, you know, if it's not a two-person race, it's quite possible to win without majority of the votes across sure. all the different states. So, you know, then you're trying to figure out exactly how you can get to that point. Um, knowing that you don't need to win every state or to win by a large amount, but you need to win at least some right. and um, probably win at least some early so you can establish like that you're truly viable. So that to me would be the question. So it's, it's can I build support in a party? If I can't, or you know, regardless of whether I do, I need to raise money, but I certainly need to raise money if I can't build support in the party. And then finally, like, what am I using that money to sell? What am I, how am I positioning myself? What's my message? What's my, and then how is that like designed to get a coalition large enough to get me the nomination? And how different would that be moving on to the general election? Yeah, it's quite a bit different. Um, so there, like, obviously it narrows to two candidates and right. a lot of the electorate is, um, you know, again, pretty locked in to supporting one side or the other. So you've got to figure out sort of how do you position yourself as um, relative to this one person that you're running with. And that that's a very complicated question that differs by the circumstances of the election, differs by which candidate. Um, so uh, my co-author Lynn Vavrick has a whole book about this um, called The Message Matters. And, you know, her argument is that you start with like this, how well are things going in the country? Like, is the economy good or bad? So if the economy is good and you're the incumbent or the incumbent party, then that's your message. You just say the economy is doing well. Look how good the economy is doing. Look what my party or look what I did. You know, Reagan did this in 1984. It's morning in America again. Um, or if you're, if you're on the opposite side, like Obama, you're the out party in 2008 and the country's in the middle of a recession and then a financial crisis. Well, you know, <laughs> it's pretty clear, like you're talking about the economy a lot. Yeah. You know, from as as an out party, if you're if the economy doesn't work in your favor, right? So you're either the incumbent in a weak economy. This could be Biden, depending sure. on what happens between now and election day. Or this, if you're the out party um, in a strong economy, so you don't really want to give the mention the incumbent party's best issue. You got to figure out what's another issue. And so what. Um, Lynn argues is that you need an issue where your opinion is closer to the average person's than your opponent is. Clearly that would make sense. Sure. And then secondly, your opponent's like sort of really tied to that less popular position. They can't wriggle out of it very easily. And that's a really challenging task um, to find that issue, you know, to be able to promote yourself as a sort of a credible um promoter of this popular position and then have the opponent like sort of stuck and not able to um, escape their less popular position. Um, so, you know, examples of this, Trump flirted with it a bit in 2020. I don't think he, he didn't close the deal on this because he's, I mean, if you look at what his ads talked about, he kind of stopped talking about this by the end of the campaign, but he was talking about crime and, you know, the George Floyd protests and, you know, mm -hmm. all of that was in some sense, you know, he didn't want to talk about the, I mean, he did talk about the economy because Trump talks about everything, but like he, his, his ads talked about it, but he would, you know, he, so he did make a play to sort of tell Americans that the economy is on the rebound, you know, we're getting past the pandemic induced recession, 
mm. you know, more jobs are being created. And he was not wrong. Like there were jobs being created because the unemployment rate had was coming back down after it had spiked in the spring of 2020. Um, but in addition to that, he made what I thought was sort of um, a separate argument around this other issue, which was, you know, there's all this crime and mayhem. My view of it is we got to stop it. His view is defund the police. Uh, that's not actually Biden's view. It's not clear that he right. was really actually tied to that view at all. He said the opposite very quickly after the, the um, Floyd protests began to happen. But that to me is an example of, of what a general election campaign typically revolves around. Um, so you go to 2024 and the question for Biden is, can you run on the economy or not? And that'll depend on the inflation rate and consumer confidence over the next mm, eight to 10 months, I'd say. And then if um, he can't run on the economy, he's got to figure out an alternative. And if uh, same thing for Trump, if the economy improves. How confident is America in, um, in Joe Biden running again? Not super confident, but not terribly um I mean, he's, his approval ratings have been sort of hovering around 43%. Um, that's kind of where Trump was, kind of where Obama was okay. heading into re-election. Interesting. Yeah, no, you know, Biden's got at least the tailwind of um, declining inflation. Hmm. Um, assuming that we continue to get declining inflation, but not a recession that would be created by like tight monetary policy by the Fed, then yeah, like, you know, Biden shouldn't feel like there's a potential right for some change. And part of what he might be able to count on is that in, in a lot of election years, the incumbent president sees their approval rating increase. People think, well, maybe this is just a function of like the president making his case to the nation hmm. and sort of, you know, convincing at least, you know, a few percentage points of voters right. that he's done a good job. Um, and Biden doesn't need, you know, he needs to get his approval rating, you know, probably close to 50% to win, but I mean, it doesn't have to be 55 or 60%. Sure. That's no, very few presidents, you know, can, can claim those kinds of numbers anymore. So that to me would be the most important thing. Um, you know, and I think if Trump's the nominee, I mean, he's he needs to get a little bit lucky. Um, Biden well, does. Trump does. Okay. Um, a lot, a little bit lucky. He doesn't okay. need to get a lot lucky. So, I mean, I think what he needs is he needs to be able, he needs the economy to stay sort of wobbly. Hmm. I think that really helps him make a case. I um, mean, and, and it makes a very, it's a very traditional case. He doesn't have to make a crazy Trump case full right. of like, you know, thoughts and ideas that like make, you know, <laughs> he probably will though. <laughs> well, he might, he says a lot of things, but like Republicans in the party, you know, who are nervous about him, like, you know, he can actually, he won't stick to a message, but he can at least funnel a lot of his message toward, you know, the economy. Hmm. Um, but the, what I think is what has been true is that Trump is just not a popular person. He's less popular than Biden. Now, he's not as uh, unpopular relative to Biden as he was in 2020 because Biden's own popularity right. has dropped, right? That's the, right. the function of being the incumbent in, in sort of challenging times. But it's the case that right, he sort of starts with you know, a really stable set of attitudes about him, um, which date back to his candidacy. 
um, and just didn't change very much, both the during his presidency and, and since he left office. So if I were the Republican Party, I would say, like, do I want to nominate a guy who's like already 10 points underwater in his favorability rating walking into the campaign right. and with very little track record of showing that he can improve that? So I would say he needs to get a little bit lucky because he needs to show that, how, like, how does a less popular guy beat a more popular guy? He needs that less popular, that, that more popular guy, Biden in this case, to have a really challenging time making the case for re-election. And that's what, like, higher inflation would enable Trump to do. Interesting. So when I say a little bit lucky, don't, don't get me wrong. Like, <laughs> I mean, what I'm saying is that obviously, like, you know, you can concoct a scenario in which Biden... Um, is quite likely to get reelected, and certainly most incumbent presidents do get reelected. But mm. it does not take much to concoct a scenario in which um, conditions in the country are not strong enough to give Biden, you know, a compelling right. lead in the national popular vote. And then it seems entirely possible that you know Biden can, if Biden doesn't win the national popular vote by enough, he could lose the electoral college. So like just right. like Clinton did. So. Then you end up kind of with the same, like, very narrow path for Trump, but ultimately a successful path. And we'll know more. Give me, you know, wait a year, and we'll have a much better sense of kind of where things stand. Sure. And what do you think about DeSantis? Strategically. <laughs> Fascinating, right? Like, DeSantis, um, one of the things we talked about, we started talking about this in 2012, um, was that candidates who don't start as the presumptive front runner, um, like Trump is the presumptive front runner right now. You know, they have to, they have to get attention from the news. Like they have to start getting something, mm-hmm. something, right? That sort of makes people think about them seriously, takes right. them seriously. And, this, and DeSantis was getting such good news coverage for a while, after the midterm especially, because he yeah. won re-election so handily and these Trump-endorsed candidates didn't do as well, and you could tell that story. And all through COVID as well with the mask mandates and whatnot. Yeah, I, I mean, he, his his approval rating in Florida is you know, pretty good. Yeah. Um, so the challenge, I think, for a lot of candidates with news coverage is that once you get that sort of burst of news coverage as like a first-time presidential candidate, obviously DeSantis is a familiar politician in many respects, but it's different when you're running for president. Like you right. have to get something that sort of propels you out of the pack to a lot of voters who don't live in Florida, <laughs> don't really know who you are, and even some voters in Florida don't know who he is because lots of voters don't pay sure. close attention to politics. Especially uh, in Florida. Maybe. <laughs> um, so I would say, you know, what, but what happens is after that initial burst of attention, which we call like the, the discovery phase, because you've been discovered as a presidential candidate, like in a way that like, Nikki Haley hasn't been discovered yet. Right. right? Well, that invites scrutiny. And that's kind of like the next phase. And it, scrutiny comes from two sources. One, it comes because your opponents start to attack you because they perceive you as a threat. And hmm. Trump needs very little encouragement in that regard. <laughs> Secondly, journalists, you know, whose job it is to, you know, report on the history and biography of these candidates, start looking more deeply at that candidate's record and inevitably find things that aren't awesome. This happens repeatedly. It happens, you know, we, we chart this over and over again for these candidates in, in 2012 and 2016. In 2016, it was, I'm assuming 2022, it was uh, 2020, it was Kamala Harris, Pete Buttigieg, you know, Elizabeth Warren, you know, had these periods of discovery followed by like, hmm, but, but how is Elizabeth Warren going to pay for Medicare for all? And then right. all of a sudden there's all this scrutiny of her plan to pay for Medicare for all. 
deserving or undeserving, right? Like the point is not like scrutiny is right or scrutiny is, you know, like revealing, you know, the, the, the most important information that voters need to know. It's just to say that there's scrutiny. And so the tenor of the news coverage changes. So I think DeSantis is living through the scrutiny phase right now. Mm. And, it, it, you know, it's possible, like you could imagine his campaign bouncing back. But, you know, I think the challenge for him right now is is making sure that so his declining poll numbers and this drumbeat of questionable news coverage, again, just doesn't become kind of a self-reinforcing cycle that you can't break out of. And it's remarkable that it's happened this soon, even before he's declared his candidacy. Mm. Um, so maybe at the end of the day, there's a, there's a path out of this for him. And, you know, in 2016, one thing that we noted about all of the Republicans who were not Donald Trump is how reluctant they were to attack Trump till, till it was too late, till after he'd, you know, after the New Hampshire primary, basically. Right. So I don't know if anyone's learned a lesson from that. Um, I think a few politicians have learned a lesson. I think Chris Christie's learned a lesson. Like, sure. You know, I mean, of course, Christie was, of course, on Trump's side heading into the 2016 election, um, the general election. But there's a handful of Republicans who are willing to take him on. I don't mean Liz Cheney. Like, I mean, I mean, like, people who are, like, <laughs> I think were more clearly on Trump's side early on, whereas Cheney, I think, has been pretty skeptical, you know, for quite some time now. But I don't know that there's enough of them, right? And so if you can't, and DeSantis seems not to want to do it. Like, he tries sometimes, right? right? He yeah. talks about, like, he sort of said some anti-Trump things when the Stormy Army Daniels Army. thing, yep. but, you know, I, I don't know that he's interested or willing or, I mean, I, he may, I think justifiably may not know exactly how to do that and then what are the consequences of doing that. Um, but at the end of the day, I think being able to um, take Trump down, you can't just sit on your hands and wait for it to happen. Like, Trump's well known. I mean, like, we know all the things that he's yeah. done. Even if these, these things that he's done end up with indictments, like, I don't... I don't know that's enough. I don't know that like <laughs> the sheer like weight of being in court in three different states or whatever is going to be <sighs> enough. Uh, so, yeah, that's where I think that that's the challenge. I think that DeSantis is confronting um, other Republicans are going to confront the same challenge. But I mean, their but their first challenge is just getting discovered and getting you know attention. Right. Um, and I'm with DeSantis. I think it's a little bit different. See, uh, last time I this might be wrong, but last time I saw a poll said the state of Tennessee, um, DeSantis um, beat Trump in terms of who they would vote for president. Do you know of anything of that nature? Of any what the polls I've seen have shown? I mean, it's a little bit tricky because you have to figure out like how to ask the question, which candidates right. to include in the list. But I sure. think what has been consistent across polls is that um, DeSantis's numbers have declined relative to Trump's. Trump's okay. have increased. And so Trump now, certainly like the national polls of likely Republican voters, primary voters, Trump's got a pretty solid lead. Whereas for a while, it looked like DeSantis was close to where Trump was maybe even in a few polls slightly ahead of Trump. But I don't, not right. anymore, not anymore. I think, um, 
what exactly is causing that. Like some people thought about you know, the scrutiny of DeSantis, but also maybe a little bit of a rally to Trump after the indictment by the DA in New York City. Mm. So I don't know, some, fa- some combination of those factors. We don't have frequent enough polling to really be able to tell a very granular story. But the overall story is that um, DeSantis, the consistent with the sort of scrutiny phase of the campaign, DeSantis, DeSantis's numbers have dropped. I want to talk about the bitter end, your book, the bitter end, and also the full title here, the bitter end, the 2020 presidential campaign and the challenge to American democracy. You kind of unpack what this book is trying to do and say. Yeah. So um, obviously we're doing the same thing in the sense of trying to understand how the 2020 election turned out the way that it did. Um, and this book starts with, a, you know, orients around a handful of, I think, key um, aspects of American politics today. Um, some of which I think are familiar to a lot of readers, um, but they're pretty consequential for understanding what happens in 2020. So we talk about the fact that the political parties have undergone sort of tectonic shifts where they're um, more similar to each other. Um, so Democrats are more like other Democrats, Republicans are more like other Republicans, and they're more different from each other in terms of the Democratic Party, Republican Party being further apart. Mm. So that's true on lots of different issues, particularly the traditional ones about the role and the size of government, but also an issue like abortion. But those are tectonic shifts because they're slow, they're decades in the making. Um, Those things are accompanied by um, a series of shorter and more dramatic shifts on these identity-inflected issues. We call those identity shocks. Um, And that's driven in part by the fact that Democrats have moved so far away from where they perceive Trump to be on issues like immigration. So the, 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 the very sharp... Um, increase in Democrats expressing liberal views on these issues is put, put, creates even more distance between the two parties mm-hmm. on those issues than existed. Um, and again, it's happened in a very short time span, like five, seven, eight years since Trump's sort of became nationally prominent. Um, the outcome of those things is that we think of political evaluations and votes as being um, more calcified. So that's the word we use to describe a process that's sort of like what it is in the body, right? Which is things become harder, more solid, more fixed. And so people's evaluations of presidents, their voting in presidential elections and other elections, you know, is just, there's just less chance that they're going to, they're going to move significantly, you know, switch sides or be persuaded to change parties or what have you. Um, and when you combine that with the fact that the parties are so narrowly divided, as I mentioned earlier, what we call partisan parity in the electorate, then what you're likely to get is election outcomes that are narrowly decided, and thus, ironically, in a calcified country, you end up with frequent shifts in party power, right? right? Because, again, like when you're narrowly divided, even if lots of voters aren't persuadable because they have like this calcification, as I said, then there's, there's still just any little shift that does happen is enough to create a different winner. So lack of change among the voter populace leads to constant change. Among if, if the voters are as narrowly divided as they are, and yeah. if so many states come down in the battlegrounds to like less than a percentage point, or you could look at Congress and see the same thing, right? Where there's a, a book by a political scientist named Francis Lee called Insecure Majorities, and that basically describes what is happening these days. So it's quite possible almost in any election year, midterm or presidential year, for one or both chambers to flip from Republican control to the Democratic control or vice versa. So, yeah, you know, 
those are the, I think, the orienting ideas. And so what the book does, it sort of plays out those ideas um, over the course of the election year. And, you know, a, a couple of themes emerge. Um, one is that events that we thought could be transformative, clearly the pandemic, also perhaps the murder of George Floyd and its, sure. and its aftermath, end up mostly getting sucked into the same kinds of partisan alignments and divides that have been part of these tectonic shifts and identity shocks. Um, that's not automatic, obviously. It happens in part because political leaders diverge. You know, Trump here is a particularly key actor in breaking with, sure. um, certainly with Democrats, and even with some in his own party on COVID and calling for the country to be reopened in April of 2020. And then also on, co on after George Floyd, there was an initial period where Republicans and Democrats all expressed concern. And, I, and we have quotes in the book to this effect, including like Rush Limbaugh, like, you know, really prominent conservatives. And then Trump really leans into this attack on the protesters. And then that sort of unravels a moment of relative unity. And by the time like Derek Chauvin's convicted in January, you know, DeSantis and Tucker Carlson are saying that he was, you know, the jury was intimidated and, you know, the, the verdict isn't therefore legitimate somehow. And we've come a long way from those initial oh. moments of unity. So yeah. that's just, I think oftentimes, like when you, when you bring a, a new issue, even a potentially unifying, like major national challenge like COVID into um, a political environment that's already characterized by this kind of partisanship and polarization that, you know, political leaders act on those incentives to talk, to bring back sure. Friedman's word, and you end up with Trump doing what Trump did, and you end up then with these issues reinforcing partisan divides rather than transcending them. Um, when you get to the election itself, you know, I mean, it's it's really illustrative of, of, of calcification, right? The, 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 the shifts that we saw between 12 and 16, like the Obama-Trump voters and stuff like that, that's just baked in, right? Mm -hmm. So most Obama-Trump voters vote for Trump. Um, the voters who voted for Romney, but then Hillary Clinton voted for Biden. Um, at the state level, the shifts are very small. At the county level, they're smaller between 16 and 20 than in, in any sort of pair of elections since the World War II. Um, there's a huge surge in turnout, but that doesn't appear to net either party a significant advantage, right? And so, like, again, you end up with outcomes that are very, very close to what happened in 2016. To the extent that there are shifts, you know, there, there are shifts that kind of magnify these partisan differences. So we document, for example, that like people perceive Trump as more conservative in 2020 than he, they perceived him in 2016. And they perceive Biden as more liberal than Clinton on a number of different issues. Right. So, wow. like, yeah. Uh, and as a result, you know, where you see shifts in people's votes is um, shifts that bring their choice for president better in line with their own fundamental ideological orientation, which is exactly to the point about like how voters pre-existing views can create like a sense of predictability. So like Trump picks up votes among conservative learning people, leaning people and Biden picks up votes among liberal leaning people. And sometimes those shifts net out in one candidate's favor or the other candidate's favor. So, you know, were very much drawn to the fact that Trump appeared to do a little bit better um, with Hispanic Americans than he did sure. in 2016. And, you know, and I think our work and then the, some subsequent work that's really done a great deep dive into the 
shifts among Hispanic voters has found that those, those gains are mostly just among conservative-leaning Hispanic voters, exactly the kinds of people you would expect to vote Republican. And okay. so, now, there's a broader question about why those shifts happened in 2020 relative to some other year. What did Trump do or what did the Democrats do or what did anyone do to help create them? Um, that's a harder question to answer, not one I think we can fully answer, but it does suggest that like the, 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 the shifts that do happen in, even in a calcified country tend to actually, in some ways, actually reinforce right. the trends that created calcification in the first place because hmm. they're not depolarizing the electorate. They're not creating um, like divisions within parties. They're just reinforcing the division between the two parties. Yeah, kind of like a positive feedback loop. Yeah, to some extent. Um, and again, there's a lot I think that, that we can do to try to unpack how, you know, why that's happening, how that's happening. To some extent, you're limited by the availability of data or, you know, the the ability to really zero in on um, exactly what's happening. And I think everyone can appreciate that when what you're fundamentally trying to explain is a shift in a few percentage points between 16 and 20, like that's a hard, it gets hard to get the microscope (laughs) resolution, Right. right, sharp enough to actually be able to see what's happening with those shifts. But that's, a, that's the story that we tell. And I think the, the aftermath of the elections, of course, is not the chapter we thought we would have to write. But like the aftermath of the election, the beginning of Biden's presidency, you know, controversies about COVID vaccines, you know, the Derek Chauvin trial. I mean, you know, the fact that the, the events of January 6th itself have given rise to, you know, another, I think, example of party polarization rather than being a moment of consensus where we all agree it's bad for people to like break into the house of mm-hmm. representatives in the Senate and hit police officers with flagpoles. And now, you know, there's a rewriting of that by some Republicans to call it, you know, these people are tourists. This was, this is a false flag operation. Like there's a variety of those kinds of things. So for our, from our standpoint, you know, even though Biden comes into office and he's not as, as a politician, I think he tries to be less polarizing than Trump. He tries to be, you know, sort of calm, sunny disposition. <laughs> you know, he's not angry all the time. Um, you know, he, he, he tr- I mean, he makes, he does the like basic things that presidents have to do when like national tragedies occur. He like says, na- you know, he says nice yeah. things rather than turning into an example, another sort of fodder for a culture war. Um, doesn't matter, yeah. you know, views of Biden are uh, more polarized when he starts his presidency than they were for Trump or Obama. Um, and then all the things that have happened under Biden's presidency really show that like, it's really difficult for a president to, you know, again, like craft a politics that transcends these things. Now, at the end of the day, what Biden may have done, right, is craft a politics that helps him win re-election and assume that the inflation rating, you know, improves, continues to improve, and that's possible. But you know, it's not a politics that transforms or remakes these divisions because I think it's really hard for any president to do that. Hmm. I want to now t- transition into talking about part of this book and the last book is the discussion of identity politics. Why do you believe identity issues have become more salient to the layman in contrast to issues like, I don't know, fiscal policy? Sure. Well, there's a couple of reasons. I mean, of course, again, it's never automatic. Right? You've, you've, you've got to have politicians and political leaders talking about those things and helping to elevate their significance. I mean, again, accepting like some external event that happens that brings these things to to the fore. Um, 
But the but the issues that voters consider to be important is a, is is strongly influenced by like the, not just the events that are happening in the country, but by what politicians themselves are talking about and prioritizing. Um, but I think one of the reasons why identity issues have some political potency um, is I think because voters oftentimes um, have somewhat stronger ideas and values related to those issues than they might have with regard to fiscal policy. What's the appropriate top marginal tax rate for the top income earning? You know, like, you right. know, what is the top tax, marginal top tax rate? Like, you know, p- voters don't know. Um, but they have sort of feelings about like, um, Do we want more or less immigration? Right, like kind of gut instinct. Yeah, I mean, again, you can find complications and nuances in public opinion about all these things if you just ask people lots of questions. But I do feel like, you know, it's quite possible for voters to, um, to, they don't need to know a lot of technocratic detail to have opinions on those kinds of issues. Um, And then moreover, I feel like, there is oftentimes with those kinds of issues a really a pretty strong emotional charge to them that comes about because um, maybe because those issues tap into these deeper questions like who is America, what is American, what does it mean? Um, and so voters end up, I think, either with stronger feelings or they end up where in a situation where their feelings about those issues are sort of easy to mobilize hmm. if politicians talk about right. them whereas like you're going to build a you're going to build a coalition you're going to build a, like an angry <laughs> march you know around free trade uh, well yeah there's lots of issues that like i think are just a little um harder to for people to 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 understand fully and, and to and to sort of feel strongly feel passionately about um, so this is why, you know, American politics has had a lot of examples of, um, for better or worse, kind of angry racial politics, you know, mm-hmm. for a long time. Um, so I, that would, I think that's part of it. And then again, once these divisions arise, then I think politicians have an incentive to, to double down in part, cause that's kind of where their, where their, um, their voters are. Uh, Democrats, you know, they believe strongly and, and passionately in, in the moral justice, you know, of, of their thinking about these issues. And that's not, you know, you might see like, you know, adjustments and tactics, like don't say defund the police, but like fundamentally, right, they are not going to abandon their commitment to justice, nor should they necessarily, you know, again, the point is not that like um, you should, you know, blow with the wind. Right. Um, but I think that, you know, you can see that in both parties, I, I think that why it's challenging to sort of really pivot. Um, equally so in the Republican Party, it's not clear to me where a moderate voice on immigration, where that comes from and, and who has the incentive to be that voice. Aren't you going to get I would Usually I would say that what happens when you say something moderate about immigration is you end up on Tucker Carlson the next night getting criticized. Now, maybe you don't end up on Tucker Carlson anymore, (laughs) but you know, you, you know that there are a lot of, um, you know, hardliners in the Republican party who are going to attack you for that kind of position and accuse you of wanting amnesty and, you know, letting people cut in line basically. So again, I think here's where, um, 
once those issues have become like more tightly linked to partisanship, like because of identity shocks in particular, that again creates its own, I think, sort of reinforcing loop where um, politicians then have an incentive to take positions consistent with those sentiments. Right. I mean, Joe Biden's not standing up and saying to Democratic voters, we need to go back to the Democratic Party of the 1990s, hmm. which, you know, had these, you know, we, we were concerned about super predators and crime and passing crime bills. And, you know, like crime was high in the 90s. Then, yeah. It was higher. And, you know, and, but in Clinton and um, Biden, both um, famously, right, you know, advocated for some elements of crime policy that today are viewed in the party as essentially like having essentially um, terrible consequences, particularly for black Americans and black men. And those would just be called straight up racist, you know, in terms of their consequences, those policies right. today. Right. And so you don't see Biden trying to kind of, unwind, you know, rewind the clock to that. Sure. That's just a function, I think, of how the partisan politics of these things have changed. And that's part, I think that's part of what keeps identity issues, um, you know, even if we are having a conversation about the inflation rate in a particular presidential year, so maybe the economy is a dominant issue, that's what ensures that like issues related to identity don't sort of shuffle off to the, you know, the wings of the stage, right? They're, they're, they're prominent and they're important in part because they're already more tightly aligned with partisanship. And so it makes it a, a natural um, place for um, politicians and voters to work from when they're thinking about their own strategies and choices in elections. It's interesting. So would you say, so I, I have a couple of thoughts. Maybe you can tell me what you think about them. Yeah. So it seems to me that what's probably the most important thing for a voter is what's salient to them, what's, what's relevant to their personal lives. Mm -hmm. So if we go back to when FDR was elected, more Americans were, let's say, living in rural, de-electrolyzed areas, the working man, right? The working man and the working woman. That's what was important. How do we support these farms that are, <laughs> uh, these farms and working conditions that are sub um, ideal? That's what's salient: the economy, working conditions, getting programs from the government. Let's actually have the government work for the people. That's salient. And now that we're in a condition where I'd argue, I mean, I don't even need to probably argue this, but that we're in a much better economic state than we were back then. That we are not many less people are in those conditions than they were then issues now transcend economics and now are somewhere in the realm of identity. And at some point in the future, maybe identity will become superfluous and something else will overhail. What do you think about yeah, that? Yeah, I, I think you're right. There's a there's definitely a vein of political science that's argued that that what has was called sort of a materialist orientation of politics, which would be focused around kind of bread and butter economic issues, you know, deeply tied to people's um, lives and livelihoods that's given way to the phrases post-materialist politics, mm. right? Which is focused on a, a, lots of different kinds of issues, but they're not fundamentally issues about like, um, you know, finding ways to improve people's quality of life via government policy, like the, no. the Tennessee Valley Authority bringing <laughs> you know, electrification <laughs> to rural areas. Right. No, instead it's about environmental politics or post-materialist in this account, politics around um, I think the, the scholars that argue this would, would probably include abortion. Um, they would certainly include a lot of identity-inflected issues in this. Now, that's tricky, though. You know, you don't want the, – the implication is not that those issues don't affect people's lives. Right? Sure. Like, of course they do. Um, 
It's just that they're not necessarily materialist in the traditional sense of New Deal economic issues. So I think that's true. Um, I think that you can certainly see uh, that you know, despite that, like business cycle fluctuations are always going to create the potential for the salience of the economy to enter into an election. Right. Um, so short run concerns um, about the state of the economy are always going to be potentially important. Um, but at the end of the day, I think what changes things is you know to, to identify issues that create divisions within parties as much or more so than they divide the parties from each other. Okay. That would be the sort of the, the engine of change. Um, I think it's difficult for me to uh, sort of identify what that issue would be, like off the top of my head. Um, however, I am also conscious that we are pretty bad at predicting the future. And there are lots of, I don't know, potential for unanticipated changes in outcomes. Let's just do, like, think about 2012 for a minute and think about, oh, how many people thought we'd have Donald Trump as the president, you know, or who could have anticipated the pandemic, you know. So not that those events changed the world, but it's still the case that I want to be cautious and sort of assuming that every thing we think characterizes the status quo will always be with us. Um, so I, I marry that sense of like, let's be cautious about prediction with, with a, also a sense of I don't, I can't myself right now predict like, or I can't even not even predict I can't I, I can't necessarily even suggest the most likely candidates for what would create change. Hmm, you know? Right. You don't even know the conditions. Yeah, it's yeah. hard to think about right now, in part because you see so many things, again, get ab- new things get absorbed into sort of our existing political divides and start trying to figure out, like, what would be, what would transcend those things is the hard part. Yeah, and Asim Talib would call that, like, a black swan event. Yeah, yeah, you would need, you need something. And again, we have those events, and we're not good at predicting them or anticipating them. That's the point of what he's saying, right? right. So, I, again, I think we, we have to be somewhat cautious, um, but we also know that the accumulation of the kind of trends that scholars of political science are describing and documenting, you know, means that like, it's not going to change on a dime. Like it's, you know, it's, it's the proverbial like battleship that's, you got to slowly steer it in a different like direction. Yeah. Yeah, and it's just hard to, it, you know, you know that the, the potential for that, a different direction is there, but exactly what would create it and how quickly that would arise is the, mm-hmm. is the challenge of, you know, figuring these things out. Do you believe the media is no longer fair, objective in their depiction of American affairs? Is this a negative or a positive thing? Um, the irony about the media is that it, you know, if you actually have a look at the sort of long sweep of American history, uh, media is much more neutral and objective now than it used to be. Wow! There you go. Let's let's hear it. <laughs> you know, we forget. You know, people forget that like there was nothing but essentially a partisan press for a long time in this country. And I don't just mean like, oh, there were editorial pages where, you know, editorial writers would state opinions or endorse candidates. I mean, like, you know, your papers were affiliated with a particular party and they were engines of party factions or parties. Right. So they were sponsored by these parties, you know, et cetera. That's the you know, that's the that's the media we have when the country was founded. Um, so gradually over time, 
both the transition to like a commercially viable press where you can actually make make a business out of running a newspaper and the and sort of changes in journalism which were you know um went al- went alongside these commercial changes where it became valuable to actually like have a reporter go and see what happened mm. write that up send it you know via telegraph or whatever and then have that published in papers that became valuable right so that person now was actually like doing journalism hmm. they weren't just an uh, an opinion columnist um or you know so the content of the news changed and so it's a marriage of like economic incentives created by commercial you know um changes and also i think sort of changes in the the culture of journalism that's very much still with us absolutely um the fact that they are opinionated outlets, you know, whether you're looking at different kinds of magazines or websites that are affiliated with one side or the other, the Nation, the Federalist, National sure. Review, whatever you want to name it, or you're looking at sort of the nature of certain cable news programming, yeah, like there's a market for opinion or opinionated coverage, so people have outlets that meet that demand. But I would say that the vast majority of what we would call mainstream news outlets. Um, and you can find these folks even at like Fox News, like in the news side, mm-hmm. not the Sean Hannity side. But these people really, I think, are trying to say like, this is what I think the facts are. And they are trying to present them in a way that is not just a reflection of personal opinions and agendas. Um, now there is a debate about what j- journalism, what neutral, uh, is neutrality the right word? You know, is does being objective mean being saying that both sides right. are right or wrong, or does it mean just presenting both sides of views and just sort of leaving it at that? Or do you need to say like call balls and strikes and say where the truth is? <laughs> right? Now, there's a debate about how, exactly how you sort of navigate that, and Trump made that particularly acute because you're trying to figure out how to report on what the president says, which is what journalists, of course, have to do, but also do you allow him to say false things without saying that they're false? And you're also amplifying that by reporting on right. it. Right, so, so you've got to figure, you gotta yeah. figure out like how much do you need to say within the context of any particular news story that what, what Trump says might not be true. So there's, I mean, so to getting the specifics of how you implement an agenda of, you know, what objectivity actually looks like when you execute it. Um, That's absolutely the subject of a lot of conversation and debate, but no one is saying what we should do is stop reporting on news events and just go back to having, you know, media outlets essentially just carry water for and advocate for the views and ideas of a particular political party or faction. Mm-hmm. So, you know, th- so, th- and again, like there's a lot of research on this that tries to, you know, measure the extent to which newspapers have, you know, um, ideological or partisan leaning. Um, but I think the upshot of that is that even if there are, you know, modest differences among news outlets, including like mainstream news outlets, which is in part a function of the audience or the, you know, the community that they're serving. You know, I don't think we're living in a world in which your your average normal workaday journalist or reporter is secretly a partisan warrior, right? I think mm. they're they're probably trying to, for the most part, do their job. Now, again, 
we're all imperfect human beings, you know, and you can certainly, you know, pick, pluck out any story you want to pluck out of the Washington Post or the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, whatever, and be like, well, you know, that framing of that paragraph suggests a particular bias. This thing is particular bias. I, ironically, the, what often happens, and this is again from some social science research, is that, you know, you, you show liberals and conservatives <laughs> the same story and the, both sides think it's biased against them. Right. right? So, you know. Just evidence to their own bias. I think we should all be careful, you know, <laughs> in our, the assumption that we can evaluate, you know, news coverage without, in a, in a you know, unbiased fashion. But that's my, that's my general sense um, of, I think, how um, journalism operates. To me, I think what I observe is the much bigger important um, challenge and, and, for journalism is just economics and, and trying to survive in an era where the traditional business model just doesn't work very well. And that's really important at the local level. National news outlets like the New York Times and the Politico, to some extent the Wall Street Journal, the Wash, some extent the Washington Post, although they're, they're having some financial issues. Um, you know, a lot of these more national brands can sort of survive, but really it's, it's the Tennessean. You know, <laughs> it's papers like that, the Winston-Salem Journal from my hometown mm -hmm. in North Carolina. Those are the ones that have really struggled, and where the decline in their ability—the right. the decline in their ability to cover political issues and, and news—is really um, dramatic, and I think important. And so, I mean, honestly, I mean, of course, this is another conversation that's obviously happening within journalism all the time. You know, how do we, how does this industry survive? But it's funny to me—we spend so much time thinking about, like, um, you know is this journalist or is this article too liberal or too conservative really like what we should be like devoting much more of our time and energy into doing is figuring out just how to make journalism more robust. Yeah. Because, and, and this gets back to the original point about how do you get wrong people to do the right thing hmm. or how do you make sure that ambition counteracts ambition? You know, you need a, you need a robust set of watchdogs is the you know usual metaphor, right? To, Ensure that politicians are doing that when voters are obviously inconsistently attentive to politics and have lots of other things with in their day to pay attention to. So that's just why, you know, when I talk about the media in just the basic introduction to government class, it usually ends with sort of a, you know, me sort of urging the students to pay for some news occasionally. <laughs> <laughs> you know, subscribe to it because how else are we supposed to ensure that it's going to be able to play the role it needs to play in a democracy. Yeah, that's interesting. I never really thought of it that way. I mean, in a way, it's I'm, I don't have anything against it. there being like a sort of adversarial system in media where it's like let all sides compete and you can decide what you believe. And it, maybe there isn't necessarily anything wrong with a, a, uh, a publication assuming a certain political disposition as long as that doesn't necessarily cloud the data itself. Maybe it's presentation, but... Yeah. I mean, I don't see how that's a negative thing in in it of itself, but I will say, you know, the people who are you know fans of journalistic neutrality, which we can talk about that immediately after this, is that they often romanticize this time in the 1950s and the 60s, where you know you have these broadcasters who speak with no emotions and present the data as it is robotically, yeah. and there's no taint of the subjective. What do you think of that? No, well, I mean, I th that it's absolutely true that. Um, in that era, you had a much less fragmented environment in which you had hmm. a small number of, of outlets, sure. particularly broadcast news, like television news, um, that I think could 
command an audience and you certainly there was a style right associated with like Walter Cronkite of right. sort of neutral but authoritative presentation but of course like you know there are other aspects of the way that news operates which you know render that era the news coverage in that era potentially you know problematic in certain respects the the tendency of of that era, right, was to sort of not report on certain kinds of issues or questions like the multiple marital affairs of John F. Kennedy. Now, maybe that's not an important story, but nevertheless, right, there were certain norms around what you could and couldn't Interesting. say or um, what was not important to say. You also had, I think, at, you know, certainly at times, um, you had a real journalists had a, a challenge then that they have now, which is particularly when it comes to national security and war, how can I as a journalist um, subject the um, viewpoints and statements coming from the government to sufficient scrutiny to understand what is true and what is not true? They're privy to information I don't have. There's pressure to sort of align with the country in times of war, and yet, it's not clear that like there was an incident in the Gulf of Tonkin that should have led to American involvement in Vietnam. Like, so same issues arose with regard to the Iraq war in terms of like, was, right. are the news, is the news able to identify these weaknesses in the government's case for war? So again, I, I don't, I, the reason not to romanticize that era is because journalists at that point still faced the same basic challenges. Um, I think so. You know, some degree of fragmentation is not inherently wrong or bad, um, but it just means that you're going to get, um, and because that creates competition, right? Which can be good from an economic standpoint. Um, but I think that when you've married that fragmentation with the growth of the internet and the challenges that news organizations have had monetizing their work, you know, when it mostly is consumed via the internet. Yeah. Um, you know, you end up in a situation where um, a lot of outlets struggle and it's not quite clear what the what success is going to look like and how they're going to be able to achieve that. Certainly, it's probably not going to come exclusively through just market mechanisms, right? You're going to have right. to look for other sources of funding, nonprofits, so whatever it is that's going to be able to sort of pick up a little bit of the slack. What are you, what do you think the function of journalism is today? Are you on the uh, objective neutrality side, or are you on the Hunter S. Thompson Gonzo oh. journalism? I mean, I, I have, I have, I mean, I have my own views about like what I want from journalism. Mm. Um, obviously, what I want is just basic, like, like what happened. Yeah. Right. So, like, if I open the Washington Post app on my phone, you know, what I'm expecting to see is, you know updated stories about things happening, right? So, you know, the, the start of this vote about the debt ceiling, you know, or whatever it is, right? And then secondly, like, I need, um, like most people, um, I need things explained to me. Like, what is happening? Why is it happening? What's this thing that we're talking about? What is the debt? I mean, I know what the debt ceiling is, but like, what right. is the debt ceiling? Why is it an issue? So I think there's a lot of issues like that. So so-called explainer journalism, which is like what Vox 
was famously associated with when they got started, but I think has really cross-pollinated into lots of outlets. I think that is tremendously useful, um, particularly because, you know, take an issue like the debt ceiling. Like, like, this is a perennial issue. It seems crazy to have to say every single time we're having a fight about the debt ceiling, what is the debt ceiling? <laughs> but you can, the, the whole point of Vox was to say you can't assume that people know. You have to assume that. It's a good assumption. Yeah. yeah. So I, I, I really appreciate that. Um, and to, so that's what I'm looking, you know, that's basically what I'm looking for when I'm consuming news. To the extent that I want to be, I want news that is, has some more entertainment value, I guess, if that's, if that's an appropriate word, then you're just looking for good long form stories, just interesting mm -hmm. stories to read about, whether that's like a, you know, crazy true crime type story like that's just interesting to read or whether that's like really unpacking bigger trends or issues you know this is what like a new yorker type magazine's trying to do i think um so i really appreciate that just for its ability to really help me learn something i mean like a lot of news coverage of ai right now is really like you know trying to understand right. this thing like i really appreciate anybody that's really going to do deep dives into that world and try to help me understand what this technology is, how it works, what, what does it imply? That's what, that's what for me is most useful. What's not useful for me. Um, I don't really need a lot of opinion journalism in my life. Um, I tend to find it too predictable. And so like, sure. You know, I just don't need to read it. Like I, I know what the, I know the arguments and I, and I understand. Um, I don't tend to find, I don't need a lot of like, um, reporting on the theater of politics. I understand why that happens, like, but I don't need like, I don't personally need to have like, to read a take on like, so how did Biden do giving that speech? Right. You know, like, right. I don't, I don't, it's just not something that's important or valuable to me. The only reason it's important or valuable to me is not because I need the reporter to tell me that, it is only because, like, as an analyst of politics, or right. uh, it's mm. useful for me to know that reporters are saying that, mm. right? Mm. So, like, oh, if I read, like, six stories about Joe Biden's speech and they all say he did a pretty good job, he didn't stumble over his words or veer off script the way he usually does, so maybe this means his age is not as much of an issue. Like, that's the kind of story these people write all the time. Right. I don't need to read those stories to learn things. I just need to know that, like, that's the sort of take that seems to exist among an influential group of political writers and commentators. Right. Um, so like when students ask me like what to read, I almost always direct them to newspapers or newspaper outlets because I, that's where they get more substance. And I say, don't watch like cable news. Don't watch news that just consists of people talking, mostly just sort of like spinning their wheels, sometimes arguing, but oftentimes, you know, really sort of fixating on sort of um, cosmetic details of politics and not on like really trying to get to the actual substance. If you were to give me like a journalistic makeover in terms of what I consume, what would you say are the go-tos? I don't know. Like I, I'm pretty agnostic on, on like pick a major newspaper hmm. that's like doing good work. I, I always, the three, I always just name if the students need examples, right? I would say the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal. Hmm. Certainly there are other national news outlets that do similar work. Politico is a good one. Um, and that's for me teaching American government. I'm just saying, like, where do you want to learn about American government? Like, right. That's where I would go. I would say that if you, um, you know, if you wanted to augment your diet, 
um, trying to find a local outlet and support it. And that's a combo of different kind of places, right? So like clearly there's usually one local paper, now only one <laughs> in each town. There used to be more. Right. But like the Tennessean would be the example in Nashville. So like I pay a digital subscription to the Tennessean just so I can read it online. Do you read The Hustler? Um, I don't read The Hustler as consistently as I could, Yeah. to be honest with you. But I would say, but I do read like, like I get the little what's happening at Vanderbilt emails. Yeah. I always look through those just mm-hmm. to know what's going on. Oh, they're closing Jess Neely Boulevard. Right. Oh, forever. Oh, <laughs> they're going to build like a pedestrian thing between the baseball stadium and the football stadium or whatever they're doing. I don't right. quite know what all that is. But, you know, I'm like, oh, that's 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 important for me to know. Like, yeah. um, so I would say, you know, you're looking for something like that because it's also good to understand like local events and local issues oftentimes are not the same as national politics. And they're not they don't have this. They don't have to have the same kinds of, you know, usual partisan debates and divides. And so you need to understand some of what that's like that what's going on. Um, like there's an empty lot at the end of my street. Are they going to build a building on it? Like I really need to know that. Um, right. So finding those kinds of stories that you can pay attention to. Um, and I think I, I guess I would say to I would say that if you were if you want to like read opinion journalism or opinion writing, not journalism, but opinion writing, mm. um, I would say like there's a great there's a lot of good people out there writing that I think of as truly um, cre- like just creative or interesting thinkers. They're not just like as, pre- not as predictable. They're not going to okay. just regurgitate the same democratic or Republican talking points. Um, they seem genuinely open to like learning and updating their views <laughs> as new information comes in. So I would say, like, you know, try to identify people who fit into that um, rubric. And if they don't, um, and ideally, right, these are people who are both, like, left-leaning and right-leaning in their basic values. Mm -hmm. But, like, you can trust them in a sense. Not because you agree with them, but you can trust them to at least have to be thinking. And then it's useful to read them think. And that, to me, would be a pretty decent media diet, um, acknowledging that life gets in the way. (laughs) <laughs> not possible to read all the things and sure. read them every day. What is the easiest thing we can fix? The low-hanging fruits in this country. Oof. It's a hard question to answer in part because I think a lot of ideas that seem e- easy or logical or common sense or whatever are actually subject to a lot of the same kinds of partisan debate and contestation or and or they are challenging in part because there's actually like a bipartisan coalition of incumbents who don't want to change the rules because they don't want to change the rules they got elected under. Right. So like it's sometimes it can be like that's an issue. It's hard to pass because you got to get like a, a majority of votes and only one party supports it. But there's other issues where it's like it's hard to pass because like it's not clear. Politicians of both parties really want that thing, um, so I, you know, I don't. It's hard for me to characterize anything as um, low-hanging fruit. What I would say is that there are a, a series of things that we could do, for example, in electoral law, that would have a modest, make voting modestly easier and have a modest increase in turnout. 
um, but not actually advantage either party based on the result, research, okay. right? So um, allowing voters to register on the same day that they vote is um, proven to increase turnout mm. by a few percentage points, but it's not, on average, but it's not going to dramatically change the balance of Democrats and Republicans in the electorate. So, you know, th that's, uh, that's something I would get behind. Um, but, you know, that's also become highly partisan as you know, and so it's not easy to persuade Republicans in particular that this is a good idea, but I'm actually, would, I'd be happy to talk to them and tell them like, <laughs> it's, it's, you know, this is only just gonna make turnout a little easier and it's not really gonna give the Democrats that many more votes than they already get. And so you might as well just like do it and see if you can, you know, if you wanna leverage it to your advantage and then go out there and try to register the voters you wanna register or right. get the voters that you wanna vote to show up on election day and register. But so I, you know, something like that would be, um, for me, like something that would be um, relatively easy to do. But in general, I think um, same thing with automatic voter registration. Right. There's no evidence that it, it makes the electorate more democratic, even though people assume all these things. That's an that's funny to me. Like, why doesn't I mean, are you assuming that everybody out there is a Democrat so that if you give more exposure to people? To the laugh? assumption is that anything that, that people that are on the people that don't vote regularly or at all are just disproportionately um, lower income or disproportionately, you know, uh, non-white racial and ethnic minority groups. I so see. Like okay. Oh, you know, on average, right, a non-voter should be more democratic leaning than a voter. That's the theory. And that's just not what the evidence has really ever shown conclusively. And so I would say like, you know, something like automatic voter registration or same day registration, anything that takes a sort of registration piece of voting out of it to me is really, um, kind of a no-brainer. Is that the subtext for allowing felons to vote for conservatives, that if they vote, they'd probably lean to the left? They probably, people probably think that, and again, it's not clear. Right. Part of what you've got to figure, part of the challenge here, I think, and why people struggle with this is that, you know, you're not just, um, if you're increasing turnout by a few percentage points, the group that you're increasing turnout among is, um, the subset of voters who would vote except for the fact that, you know, they're not registered or it's hard for them to register, mm -hmm. right? So like, w that's a small group, right? It's not, the, the, it's not every non-voter because, you know, unless we're gonna make voting compulsory, yeah. you're never gonna get every non-voter to vote or the vast majority of non-voters to vote. So what you have to think about is what's the political complexion of that smaller group that's right there at that threshold between voting and not voting and that's the group for whom the law makes a difference. Turns out that that group is typically fairly politically heterogeneous. Okay, you know it's just not a bunch of uh, it's not all Democrats. So that's why that's why you can I think make voting somewhat easier, at least in terms of registration. Cre you know increase turnout modestly, as I think these reforms typically do, and then and know at the end of the day that the electorate is not going to be dramatically changed in terms of its partisan composition. I'd like that to be low hanging fruit, but it's not. Mm. It's bound up with the same kinds of. I think somewhat um, inaccurate uh, views that give rise to sort of you know, partisan arguments about whether we should do these things. So that would be something. That's my best. That's my best answer at this moment. Right. It's not a. It's not a, um, it's not a. It's not a dramatic change, though, in the sense of like it's. So if you really, what you really want to do is like is create proportional representation you know, changed from two-party competition to multi-party competition. You know, that's a much more, <laughs> uh, that's not low-hanging fruit. Right. However, you know, like 
um, you, you know, people might want to achieve that. So I don't put that in the same category. What advice would you give to politicians today? I don't think of myself as necessarily knowing much about like what their lives are like and what they should or shouldn't do. Um, I never run for office. You know, I'm not a, I'm not like a political operative. I don't, I don't work for politicians. Um, and I appreciate that the work they do is hard and it's not easy for me to sit here, you know, on a college campus and lecture in this room. Yeah. Lecture to them about what they, um, about what they should do. Um, I guess if there was something that from time to time has bothered me a little bit, um, I think politicians sometimes, they, they seem to spend a lot of time assuming that um, their every small word and deed like, is potentially like damaging or like could really be the thing that sways voters in one way or another. So sometimes with politicians, it's like you, know, you read about some scandal right. and, you read about, and then you, you read about the cover up of the scandal. And then once the scandal's been revealed, then you read about politicians sort of like, you know, like refuse, like just refusing to come clean and just like, they, then they compound it because they, they lie about it. Like, and then the lie gets caught and then they lie again. So we've got scandal, we have cover up, and we have like a series of sort of half truths and myth truths. And what that seems to reflect is this view like you just, you have to say these things or else you're going to get canceled. Can't beat, you know, lose. And in reality, like, it's not clear that's actually a better strategy than just saying, <laughs> saying what happened or not doing it in the first place, but saying what happened and then just like letting it. Um, I just, I see these very like, um, what striking strikes me oftentimes as also, also very petty things um, that politicians do, you know, punishing each other, or seeking revenge, or you know, like I, you know, like it's one thing if like that's specifically serving like some policy goal. I don't know. Maybe sometimes maybe it is, but like oftentimes it strikes me that they're just playing politics, thinking that this is what's going to be helpful to them. And I again, mo- when most voters aren't paying close attention. I think sometimes all this maneuvering is really just not important. You should just ignore it. Hmm. And and you should b- not bother with it. And you should, you know, to the extent that you feel like you have to sort of like, oh, you know, every single day our goal is to is to ensure that, like, reporters say this one specific thing. Eh. Of course you want reporters to be writing about issues that you want them to write about. But, like, again, like getting down to the, level of sentences and stuff like that, like trying to obsess about these small things. From time to time you read, like Obama famously was trying to sort of steer away from like reacting to what was on, you know, cable news that day or Twitter oftentimes is held up as a similar thing. Like you can't get wrapped up in, you know, sort of social media conversations and reactions. so I would say, uh, yeah, trying to, if you have a, if you have an appreciation for the modest level of interest that many voters have in politics, you know, then you can just d- go off and do your job. Like do, do the best job you can promote the policies you want to promote. You know, you'll live and die by whether 
you know, you can build a record that leads voters to want to reelect you, but like obsessing about the minuscule details of public relations, you know, I don't know. That's what gets strikes me is is sometimes unnecessary. So if I guess if I were to give to a piece of advice to politicians, it'd be like just relax. Hmm. That's yeah. interesting. I mean, uh, going back to Nixon, I feel like it would, Watergate would not have been as bad as it ended up being if he had just come out and told everybody. Well, and I mean, you go back into what he was trying to do. You know, and you go back, and he, oh, he was trying to win the 1972 election. Which he would have won anyway. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, it's just ridiculous. The, like, and, you know, then, it's, then it gets to sort of comical levels. I mean, if it weren't like so damaging from a democratic standpoint, yeah. um, small d democratic standpoint, then we would laugh at it as just comically amateurish, right? Yeah. Um, and that's what it was. Um, and, you know, you, when you go and you look at the details of that scandal and the things that they were said and the tapes that, you know, the, that they kept in the Oval Office, then, it, you know, it, it's quite awful what yeah. they were doing and thinking. But what it starts with is this, like, really strikes me as a sort of a penny ante operation, you know, to attack the opposite party. And, again, like, at the end of the day, presidential elections just don't turn on this stuff. You know, and so it's it, to me, it's pointless. It's not worth doing. Um, so I, yeah, I would certainly put Watergate in, in a category of, you know, ridiculous political stunts and scandal scandals. Again, predicated, I think, on a, a theory of the electorate that, well, maybe it's not predicated on a theory of the electorate. Maybe it's just predicated on like, um, you know, having essentially a corrupt mindset right like machiavellianism something yeah, yeah but like you shouldn't assume that that like that kind of um partisan warfare is is necessary you know or influential in terms of how lots of people think about politics and whether they support you in an election so I, yeah that's why i would say just relax yeah i think it's funny it's always silly to see like machiavellian types who nixon very much was i mean you read some of the stuff he said early on it's like oh that's interesting and, and so it's always interesting to see the people who think that they're going to be the most politically effective end up being the least politically effective. Well, you know, he, he won two elections. Um, you know, oh, he, yeah. He did. Yeah. He, he was effective. He was effective. <laughs> I guess in his so. Way. He was effective in his way. But again, like you can see that. Um, yeah. I mean, you can see what dark place you end up in. Yeah. You know, if you can't think about politics as anything other than it's kind of Machiavellian um, competition of sorts. So, yeah, I would say, you know, um, most politicians could probably sweat some of these details um, a lot less, um, knowing that that's not the consequential stuff that voters are thinking, that most voters are thinking about. it probably means a little bit less focus on communications hmm. um, and a little bit more focus on policy. So like one of the trends in Congress that has been, I think, pretty well documented is um, a shifting staff allocation um, so that there's more focus on communication hmm. and less focus on policy. Just in terms of like where you assign staff, you that's know, what their, what their job description is. So, you know, you think about why that's the case. It's sort of weird. It's like, well, it's kind of concerning, actually. Well, member, are members of Congress much more electorally vulnerable than they used to be? Mm. It's not really clear that they are. They have a little bit, they're a little bit more likely to get like a primary challenger, but most politicians win primaries and win the general election, yeah. you know, when they get, when, this is members of Congress, when they go to Stanford election. So, you know, at the end of the day, sort of, again, 
you know, orienting your work increasingly around like, what are we tweeting today to be kind of glib about it? Like, I just, I don't think that's useful or necessary. I don't really think that you need to think of politics as being won and lost at that level of detail or your elections being won and lost. I would just rather say like, you know, work for the goals you want to work toward, um, push the policies you want to, that you sincerely believe in. And then, you know, hopefully like you're successful. And then from your standpoint, hopefully those things are good and popular and not bad ideas and, or unpopular ideas. And then you've, you know, you've made it difficult for yourself, but that's something else I would just, I would, I would say like, I, what I appreciate about politicians, you know, when I appreciate them is that, um, these are people who have worked hard. Um, they've learned stuff. They, have like genuine and sincere um, ideas about how to make the country better. They are responsive to the needs and concerns of voters and their constituents. Like that's what I fundamentally want. Mm. Um, what I find, you know, when I find what it's more noxious often, but also just I think again unnecessary. It's just sort of like. Uh, we won the day on Twitter, you know, like <laughs> that tweet really got a lot of engagement, you know, or whatever it is. I would like to see, again, not that all politicians think that way all the time. I just, I would just like to see again, a kind of a, a re, some like a reprioritization of what they're doing. And this is my final question of the day. What are you hopeful for today? Mm. Yeah, it's never a good question to ask when <laughs> predicated, you know, a conversation on the state of American politics. Um, <laughs> um I don't, you know, I, my wife's an Episcopal priest and sometimes she tells me that, you know, we can, even amidst all the terrible things happening, we can still feel hope. And I'm never quite sure. I'm always glad that she thinks that, but I'm never, <laughs> like where her, what about her like life and livelihood allows her to sort of have that view. I don't always have that view. I would guess I would say this. I would say like, um, if you will take the broadest historical sweep, a lot of things have gotten better. So we got, we went from an era that you were you know mentioning before during the Great Depression, where not just that we not just because we had like a, a depression at that moment, but there was a lot of like systematic need in the country, right? And so economic development and political like efforts and institutions have addressed a lot of those needs, right? So we have like like fewer people without electricity and just to take the example right. that you mentioned, right? Um, at the same time, um, we have as a country confronted a series of extraordinary challenges with regard to our ability to um, incorporate and empower and treat with dignity and respect, you know, marginalized groups of different kinds. So certainly the experience of black Americans in this country is the most long-standing one, but you also have Native Americans and you have all these groups, including women, including um, LGBT, all those things. So those battles are, you know, in terms of like achieving equality or achieving justice, like those are ongoing and there's no question like that, that work is far from finished, but I also feel like there, there has been progress. So 
a lot of progress. a lot of civil rights struggles you know they have they've achieved meaningful victories for these people and i think they're and actually in some respects have made everyone's lives better like because we don't have to live in a world where you know where our politics is as organized uh in, in our institutions are as organized around maintaining those hierarchies although of course that hasn't gone away entirely so you know, I look back at that, and I've and I'm old enough—not that old, but like I'm old enough to have lived through like uh, you know a sea change of public opinion about gay and lesbian people that I think has been pretty remarkable. So, you know, those I think are reasons for hope. Not that that not that um, uh, things move inevitably or smoothly in that direction. That's certainly not true. Those things are almost always predicated on on political fights and battles, which are time-consuming and difficult, and they have setbacks. And so it's sort of you know one step forward, two steps back some days. Um, but I do feel like, you know, again, if you take the broadest possible sweep, um, things have gotten better. And if you want to take a more global view, um, you know, I think we live in a world with um, there's a lot less um, severe poverty. Yeah. Life expectancies have increased. Um, uh, overall, this is a little tricky to measure. And I think there's some argument about this, but like, I think overall, it's a less violent world to live in than it once was. I think. So again, like a lot of things have improved and there's a mixture of causes of that. It's a long, complicated story, but like, I'm just saying, like, I think you could take that kind of view and say, um, that's, that's all cause for hope. Um, again, like, I don't know, like maybe that's not, um, something Better outcomes might not happen tomorrow or in a year or in 10 years. It may not happen in my lifetime. There are new challenges, climate change or what have you, that I think, you know, obviously pose um, real obstacles to the continuation of some of those trends. Um, so, again, I don't mean to suggest that by, but by merely pointing out right. that some things have gotten better. I'm not trying to minimize today's problems or suggest that we can sort of sit back and rest on our laurels or pat ourselves on the back. But I'm just saying, like, if you want, just because you asked me about hope, when I, for myself, if I want to have hope, I think about the longest term um, trends and the potential for um, those trends to continue and maybe other things that today we recognize as, you know, problems to, to get better over the long run. Yeah, I think being appreciative of the progress we've made helps us create more progress. I hope so. I think that's that we should be constantly learning from how that progress was achieved and appreciative of the people that sacrificed for that progress and then trying to figure out ways that we can continue to do that work. Amen. Thank you, Professor Seitz, for joining me today. Thank it was a great conversation. I had a lot of fun, learned a lot, and uh, hopefully we can do this again in the future. My pleasure. Thank you for joining me for this episode and all episodes prior. Like I said, we'll be joining again next October, or this coming October, and for now we'll take a little hiatus for the summer and kind of collect our thoughts and figure out who we want uh, for the next season of Notes from Nash, but it's been great. I'm glad if you joined for this or for previous episodes, for all of them or a few, let us know what we can do to improve the show, and um, I'll see you all next time.